Hello, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy. Today, I am speaking to you from a lovely Scottish day. I have shortbread in my hand and tea in my other hand, and I'm hoping that I don't spill it on my computer. And I have the great delight of welcoming a guest on today that I think you will all enjoy immensely and learn a great deal from, which is Dr. Rebecca Lamb. She is a lecturer in, in theology and the arts at the Divinity School at the University of St. Andrews. And we are going to talk today about boredom. We hope it won't be boring. <laughs> Anything but. Yeah. Anything but, indeed. So welcome on the show, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. And Rebecca, we met um, about a year, year and a half ago now? Close to that. Close yes. to that now, yeah. yes. In person. We had met in the Twitter sphere earlier yes. than that. I am always surprised at how many kindred spirits I have encountered on Twitter. I know, yeah. And slowly but surely, they begin to trickle into meeting people in real life. And uh, you had just just finished your PhD the year before when we met, right? Uh, close to it, yes. Yeah, I finished my doctorate in 2015. Okay, and you were doing a postdoctoral fellowship, right? And you kind of, you came here just for a, a month. Of, I don't remember, you were doing research here? Yes, yeah, I was doing a research stint and was doing a little bit of, of work with Judith Wolf, who is mm-hmm. now who's now one of my colleagues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and since then, now you are a lecturer at the university and we have gotten to be friends, which is such a delight. And I'm always learning from you and enjoying our conversations. Same. Earlier, before I uh, before we started this podcast, I was like, Rebecca, I'm just as an icebreaker, like come up with three, you know, things people wouldn't know to ask you about. Yeah. And Rebecca expressed her dislike of icebreakers. Yes, my profound dislike, yes. Would you like to elaborate on why you don't like icebreakers? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, anytime I've been in a situation where they're used, I find they basically uh, are counterproductive. Or at least or at least they, yeah. they, they don't allow people to actually feel at ease. I'm I'm already at ease with you. So yes. th- that's great. But um yeah, always having to try to list something like three things about myself that other people might find interesting. For whatever reason, I've always found that a really hard task. I know. The thing is, I, it's kind of unfair for me to ask because I always find that I get paralyzed when someone asks me. Yes. I'm like, I've never done anything interesting. What are you talking about? You Which know. of course isn't true. Which of course is not true. true. It's like when someone asks you like what your favorite book is and you're all of a sudden like, I... I cannot think of a single book. Right. Have I, I ever read a book? Yeah. <laughs> what are books? <laughs> um, and also, I feel like you really are a person who needs no icebreakers because... Um, Very kind. Thank you. No. Whenever we get into conversations, we just... Sort of plunge right we in. We just plunge right yeah. in. I know. And I think that that's part of it because when I get to to meet people, I, th- I think often icebreakers... Now, you don't do this, and I think your icebreaker questions are often super fun. Um, <laughs> but very often, icebreakers tend to you know ask people depending on the context, mm-hmm. to say, you know, where they work and X, yeah. Y, Z, certain things about them, which, of course, are important aspects of who a person are, but I think that we're, we're difficult to summarize. And anyway, yeah, for whatever reason, I've just, perhaps I've had too many awkward uh, work uh, experiences with this sort well, of thing. Well, I have a feeling that many listeners would identify with that. Yes. And I always get a kick out of, uh, and I'm, this. I think this is true in whatever social setting you're in, but in academic circles, it's kind of like you go, oh, hello, what are you studying? Which school are you in? Exactly. Uh, where are you from? Yes. H- how's your writing? And it's like right. these very, you know, anyway. 
All this to say, welcome, the ice is broken. Oh, I'm so you. happy to have you. Also, <laughs> I was told to mention that you are Canadian. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is partly because uh, ever since I've had um, my position here at St. Andrews and I'm going around and, and speaking at various places, uh, sometimes people are surprised that I don't have a thick Scottish accent. And <laughs> even though I, I really wish that I did, because I think everything sounds so much more uh, authoritative and passionate when, when you do have one, I don't. So uh, just in case any listeners were, were hoping that I was of uh, Scottish origin, um, I, I'm not, though, though. I am uh, falling in love with Scotland more every day. Yes, and we were discussing the benefits and drawbacks of acquiring a uh, empathetic Scottish accent. Yes, yes. <laughs> but neither of us have. No. Uh, but uh, but Canada is a fine place itself. Oh, thank you. I would agree. Okay, so let us dive into today's topic, uh, which is your expertise, <laughs> which is boredom. So you did your PhD kind of broadly in what would be termed as boredom studies, yes, right? Yes, I did. And yeah everyone who's listening, boredom studies are a thing and they exist. Exactly. So tell us a bit about your project. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, so just as you said, boredom studies is a growing field of uh, inquiry. It's it's very interdisciplinary. So I would say sociology is really advancing um, in in this area Mm -hmm. as as a psychology. And uh, literary studies is starting to pick it up as well. There have been a few books recently published that often are at the interface of philosophy and literature that talks about the growing problem of the question of boredom, which many scholars link to uh, the industrialization of, um, you know, uh, whole countries and so Mm. forth, particularly from around the uh, 1800s onwards. And I'll say a bit more about that later. There really hasn't been enough sustained discussion about this growing problem of boredom, which I think is very much linked to modernity and certain mm-hmm. um, modern experiences that we are having, um, there really hasn't been enough study on it. So mm-hmm. I became um, very interested in the sociological, but also spiritual implications of this mm-hmm. this mood, this, this state of discontent. So malaise. Yes, malaise is one of the many words you could <laughs> use for it. Yes. Yeah. Dullness, repetition, exhaustion. I think midlife crisis, a, a variety mm-hmm. of other uh, of other terms, restlessness. Um, those are all, I think, pretty apt descriptors of various dimensions of this. What what some scholars have called almost ubiquitous or democratic mm-hmm. mood. Um, hmm. uh, Walter Benjamin talks about the ways in which, especially in the Industrial Revolution, boredom became almost this mass affect or emotion of discontent mm. that was that was kind of sweeping through, for instance, England, if we just look at industrialized England as a case study. Um, and it's something that I look at quite a bit just because I am a Victorian scholar by training. You see that uh, the ways in which work have been removed from a more rhythmic, uh, say, agrarian context mm. into, into a highly accelerated, fast-paced industrial mm. one that really changes the relationship between workers and their notions of time mm. and even their relationship to, say, machinery and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but you also have increasingly the middle to upper classes who, because of the e- efficiency of work and the growing, um, in a sense, alienation of people within communities because of mm. the expansive, rapid expanse of cities, you have a lot of... Um, uh, the upper class with lots of time on their hands. Mm. Uh, Charles Dickens, for instance, explores this through the figure of Lady Dedlock in mm. in um, 
Oh Bleak goodness. House. Bleak House. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I love her yes. in the BBC series. Yeah. Just kind of like always gazing out windows and looking Yes, morose. absolutely. Yeah, 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 exactly. And even the term deadlock. I mean, yes. uh, 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 I love Dickens he does always, names. He does. Yes. <laughs> he's always trying to show some psychological or spiritual aspect of the person through their names. It's, it's very often anyway, and, and is also quite playful. Um, so anyway, those are some of the, the, aspects of the problem of boredom that that I've been looking at but we'll talk mm-hmm. about it more um, and, and as a note to come full circle and return to Canada mm-hmm. um, right now Canada is really leading the way in boredom studies I mean mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of jokes in there that everyone's prepared uh, to make <laughs> um, in your long winters when you you know you have maybe three neighbors <laughs> in some remote part of Alberta maybe that makes sense but no um it just so happens that that's some work that's coming out of uh, the University of Toronto, the University of Western Ontario, where I got my doctorate, and um, and a few other places are have really been looking at this problem of boredom. I think it's so interesting because I think in our kind of funny little modern minds, mm-hmm. we can think we're bored, but right. like think of all the people back in the 1500s who yes. didn't have iPhones or Netflix, <laughs> exactly. and it's right. like, aren't they the bored ones? Um, That's a good question. So yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more, kind of like unpack what it is about, it sounds like kind of the erasure of, of the rhythms of seasons mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. Like, what do you think it was that made this mood of boredom? That's yeah. a very good question. Yeah. All right. And it, it will take a little bit to unpack. Sure. Uh, so first off, okay, if we just even look at the word boredom in the English language, it really doesn't come into currency mm-hmm. until the Victorian period, until mm. the Industrial Revolution. Other words were being used to mm. talk around or to gesture at aspects of mm. this problem. So for instance, I think melancholia or mm. um, melancholy, uh, ennui, mm. Spiritual discontent, <laughs> restlessness. Um, there's a lot of. I just been reading Count of Monte Cristo, and there's a there's a shocking amount of ennui. Yes, ennui is. How would you describe ennui? Yeah, well, it's a French. It's a term of, of French origin, obviously, mm-hmm. and I think it more has to do with a kind of existential gnawing at your soul, a restlessness. Um, what lies before you is not fully satisfying you, but there is this intensive melancholic aspect to it, mm-hmm. which does not always accompany. Um, the experience of boredom. So there are some debates among scholars about the genealogy and the term boredom. So some see it as just another another term or another word that developed in the English language mm-hmm. um, to describe states that, of existence that we've had since, let's Forever. say, since, for, since the dawn of time, since yeah. we were human, um, since humans were in the world, sorry. Those who argue that um, say that we can find equivalents in, for instance, the upper class culture of the Roman era. So mm-hmm. especially the term uh, tedium vitae, exhaustion mm-hmm. or weariness of life, mm-hmm. the breads and circuses mentality that you can always be entertained and you can afford to do, do mm-hmm. so and you have others to do the work for you, right? And then you move into uh, particularly the context of uh, the contemplative and the monastic life that really flourished once the Edict of Milan um, occurred and and Christians had legal status and more freedom of movement and and growth as communities. Um, And so, for instance, you see, especially in the writings of the early desert fathers and Mm -hmm. early desert mothers, Mm -hmm. a great deal of discussion about certain um, emotions of discontent that Mm -hmm. really emerge when you dedicate your life to a life of content. Contemplation. Because when you have that space to work in a contemplative mode and also just to spend a great deal of your time in prayer and reflection, of course, one of the temptations is going to be distraction, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this distraction can 
become incredibly pronounced, especially if, you know, you have the space to experience it quite frequently. Mm -hmm. And so uh, many of the monastic, uh, early monastic writers called this... um, this distraction, the noonday devil. It mm. often would emerge when the sun was, was at its zenith, especially mm. if you are in a desert, as most mm-hmm. monastics would be. Um, and it's hot, uh, and you're supposed to be at prayer or perhaps doing some of your work, such as basket weaving, which was um, a, a big part of how uh, monasteries had sustenance. Um, and so the distraction would be, uh, the temptation would be this distraction from your prayer or the work at hand. Mm. And um, it's very much fi- uh, represented as. As, um, as a kind of demonic attack, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to counteract it with different kinds of virtues, particularly perseverance, actually. Mm-hmm. I do think that boredom is profoundly linked to a variety of spiritual and social discontents that we mm-hmm. see in human nature since mm-hmm. the fall, right? Yeah. Um, however, I do think that there is something uniquely modern about it as mm-hmm. well. So I'll talk about that, but I'll continue with the... Yes. The, 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 the very genealogy. short, yeah, the genealogy, which which I know has gaps. And uh, what is it? I We're think dancing through the centuries. Yes, there you go. Yes, yeah. Um, I think it was Alan Tate who said any paraphrase is a form of heresy. But anyway, that's okay. <laughs> we'll just keep going with this. Um, so uh, there's this monastic focus on this uh, problem of distraction, mm. which especially is... Um, I, I would say uh, a temptation for the the contemplative, the intellectual, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, but then there are also other ways to describe it as well. There is uh, the work that Thomas Aquinas did in the Summa to really examine the nature of the problem of um, sloth, or what's also termed acedia. Mm. And um, this is something I pick up quite a bit on on in my own research. So um, Aquinas was very interested in with the, the early, you know, um, writers of the church, not only the church fathers, but even the, the, the desert fathers, um, said about the problem of um, this noonday devil or this temptation to be distracted. Uh, but I would say Aquinas goes even further into this, this question of acedia. So acedia is one of the seven deadly sins, and we very often understand it as... Um, a laziness, right? Mm-hmm. Or that you are neglecting your duties, be it your work, your prayer, your social obligations to others. And Aquinas acknowledges that this is all um, a part of the problem of acedia. However, he argues that at the heart of acedia is a rejection of the joy that comes from charity. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a fear of the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit when mm-hmm. you open yourself up to the commandments of God. Um, because uh, Aquinas's view is that the commandments and that especially the call to charity and enjoying the theological virtues and in living lives of you know natural and also uh, the cardinal virtues opens you up to being more fully yourself and to being authentically human and he says that acedia at the heart of acedia is a certain rejection of what makes us human which is very mm-hmm. interesting um, and he argues in particular that it's not just um, acedia is not just negligence of particular duties but in fact it is a sometimes a very energetic avoidance of the things that you owe God. And in fact, he calls Hasidia <laughs> the distaste for the things we owe God. Mm. So he often figures um, someone who's slothful, for example, or who uh, has the vice of Hasidia as very busy. Um, it's as, kind of like when you're trying to write a paper and you, yes, and you yeah. clean your house and you make an amazing dinner. And you do everything except exactly. for the needful thing. 
that that's very true or you you know if we think about our culture that is so fast paced Mm -hmm. everyone is always busy with something on their iPhones Mm -hmm. that can't wait Mm -hmm. right or even just the kinds of demands that are put on us because we have access to technology um, you know it seems like our work day never ends right Mm -hmm. and so there isn't this space made for leisure but particularly for Aquinas um, in his context uh, he would be talking about the avoidance of Sabbath keeping <clears throat> so the avoidance of uh, worship, actually, and mm. the contemplation that particularly belongs to um, uh, Sunday mm. and to the liturgy in particular. And so he argues that the the person who uh, has acedia does not have a quiet mind and mm. also does not contemplate God fully or give time for that contemplation. And so therefore can't be happy because mm. for Aquinas pulling from as from the philosopher, as he calls mm-hmm. him, from from Aristotle, um, uh, happiness is contemplation, is the mm-hmm. contemplative life. Um, yeah, and I think that's interesting because I think oftentimes we tie boredom with like a lack of action. Yes. Yes. As absolutely. though if I if I'm not doing anything, I will I will um, that's when I will be bored. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that Aquinas, and I think this will come in as you continue your um, chronology, would say that boredom can actually come out of an excessive activity that's not meaningful. I think so, yes, where yeah. it's always pleasure-based. So yes. you're always thinking about uh, fulfilling some kind of immediate, more appetitive mm-hmm. uh, uh, need or desire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting how, uh, to continue on with the genealogy, uh, Dante, um, who enters the scene uh, only mm-hmm. a few decades after Aquinas Aquinas dies. Um, uh, Dante uh, is born in 1265, I believe, Mm -hmm. around there. Um, When he writes the Divine Comedy and he examines each of the seven deadly sins in his uh, Cantica um, Purgatorio, he figures sloth or acedia as the midway point um, in the, if we think about the um, hierarchy of the seven deadly sins, Mm -hmm. Pride is the root of all sin. It's at the base of this mountain of purgatory that mm-hmm. Dante describes for us. And then you move through um, uh, other sins that have to do particularly with a violation or an abuse of your intellect, mm. um, such as anger, mm. wrath, for instance, or um, jealousy and so on. But when we get to the the deadly sin of acedia or sloth, the um, interestingly, the punishment for the souls in purgatory is that they're forced to continually run back and forth Hmm. and they don't have time to stop and pause and pray. Hmm. All of the other cornices or levels of purgatory where different sins are being, you know, um, uh, purged away, like pride or lust and things like that. Um, Prayer is a very key aspect of Hmm. the purgation process. But um, it's very interesting. A a former colleague of mine, Christine Schinken, uh, Mm -hmm. who teaches at Our Lady Seat of Wisdom College in Canada, it's a Catholic liberal arts college um, where I used to work for a while. She wrote a really interesting article a little while ago called, can the um, slothful, why don't the slothful have a prayer? I think Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing the title, but she makes the argument that um, the inability to pray is actually, is actually um, a source of great pain for us and psychologically, uh, Uh, It's psychologically unhealthy. And so um, what Dante is doing, he very often um, gives some kind of pain or deprivation to his, uh, you know, to the souls in purgatory. um, But if they embrace it, then then they um, learn what they basically rejected in their Mm. in their earthly life. Right. So but um, the fact that the slothful 
aren't allowed to have the time to pray um, mm. helps them to appreciate what they've been missing. So they're constantly mm. running back and forth and um, they call out consolations to to each other, the, the fellow slothful souls, mm-hmm. but they don't get a chance to, to um, a- abide um, in God in, in mm. the way that prayer affords quite mm. uniquely. Yeah. Wow, that is beautiful. And I think I think what strikes me most as you're talking is really this opening up of the idea that boredom does not have to do with a cessation of activities. Yeah. Joel and I were talking about this. We just went on a walk. Okay. On, and there's a connection with me to this, to silence. Hmm. We were walking along um, this beautiful coastal path. And at one point, we just stopped talking. And we're just kind of taking in the beauty. And Joel was like, you know, it's funny. Because when you, when you rest in silence, you never hear only silence. Yes. You know, when you finally uh-huh. give in to that, what you f- discover is not complete silence. Right. Um, and I think the same is somewhat true to resting and to Sabbath uh, mm-hmm. in this relationship with boredom. We really, I don't think you will be truly bored if you have, a, if you're in a space of true contemplation and uh, of, of prayer and awareness. Um, boredom comes out of meaningless activity to some sense. I think very often, yes, absolutely. And yeah. I think it also, um, well, of course I'm kind of dragging this into the, the now times, but it also, um, it's kind of like that meaningless activity drives us into further boredom right? to, to relieve that. Yes. So, okay. Kind of like the myth of Sisyphus. You know, you're always yes, pushing, pushing up that the, rock yes. and it's falling back down. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I felt like Sisyphus many a time sitting in my room scrolling <laughs> through Twitter going, this is neither making me feel more happy nor... Anyway. Um, so, okay. So you said, though, that you think that the kind of boredom that we see described now, it is both connected to this very human kind of... Um, you know, this very human in- inheritance of mm-hmm. we do have we have this issue with not sitting and not sabbathing and not being in a state of contemplation. But you right. also think that we have a particular problem with boredom yes. now. Mm-hmm. And um, just to add like a little sociological bit from this, something I was reading recently um, was saying that our generation of of workers, so millennials, yes. have more. Um, they have more free time than any generation has since they've started kind of recording this. Right. Um, but they report feeling like they have very little free time. Yes. And so there's this kind of listlessness and this... So anyway, I, I'm just curious about... So you think that this feeling of, of boredom, of melancholy, of ennui is something in the inheritance of human nature, but there's mm-hmm. also something uniquely modern about it. Yes, I think so. Um, so... And, and what you've already just been been gesturing to is, is, I think, a really interesting manifestation of some of the consequences of the ways in which our uh, notions of time have profoundly changed mm-hmm. uh, since the Industrial Revolution. We've really lost uh, what Walter Benjamin would call the cultic or the ritualistic dimensions of our existence that mm. were um, were shaped and fed by uh, the religious sense in particular, mm. right? Broadly speaking in various sociological cultures. Um, Henri Lefebvre has talked about this as well as Michael Gardner, who's a sociologist at the University um, of Western Ontario, who's talked quite a bit about the ways in which our relationships to time changed in the Industrial Revolution has really accelerated mm. the, the various forms of Um, that boredom can take for us. Um, So I'll talk about that a little bit more. So this is, um, in saying this, we're not idealizing the past, right? No, exactly. No, I mean, I only have to think of how many Monty Python sketches, you know, of like the... Middle Ages and, you know, getting tired of working in the sludge or whatever. Yeah. The month. Like there was there was some bot on Twitter recently was, was like you would put in your name and it would yeah. like 
like give you like how you died and what <laughs> age in medieval Europe. So like, you lived to the you know yeah. the ripe old age of twenty nine. Yeah. yeah, you died in the plague. Yes. You died in childbirth. You know right. exactly. Yes. Mm. So, um, however, especially when it comes to some of the unique. Uh, uh, realities or dimensions of modern living that I think has made boredom so profoundly present um, in some rather unique ways. Uh, a couple of the things that I would point out is, again, I've mentioned the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, and that would be like, so to put that on a very practical level, yeah. when you think about the work that people shifted yes. from doing, so like we went from a primarily, for the most part, agrarian society, yes, yeah. where um, there were different tasks for different times of the year. Yes. And it was very dependent on weather and mm-hmm. and in that was also tied up a lot of the cultic because you had exactly you know you had your harvest but it wasn't like this is my job and then I have the celebrations of my church it was you had harvest it was linked with certain celebrations and saints exactly. days exactly so you had that and then there's an integrated sense of the religious with with the everyday yes yeah. and then you go to um like flocks of people now moving away from the fields working in places like mills and uh-huh factories where you do the same work every single day for every single month out of the year. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes. There's no No. rhythms. It's like a twilight zone of never ending the same thing. Sure. These things are certainly an aspect of this growing question of boredom. But I would like to unpick boredom a little bit here because uh, part of my argument throughout my, Mm -hmm. my current book project on this topic is that boredom is an ambivalent mood ultimately. Mm -hmm. So um, that means that there are there can be positive hmm. kinds of boredom and there can be negative kinds. Hmm. So you have to examine the sources and the causes of the boredom to then hmm. discern, you know, is, is this always necessarily a problem? Now, this is partly because certain psychologists, Adam Phillips among them, who's one who especially comes to mind, argued that a certain amount of boredom is actually required for, say, creativity, right? Mm-hmm. There's that kind of lull before you then or that mm-hmm. frustration. And mm-hmm. we all know that if we're working on, you know, I know that as I write my book, right? Yeah. It gets very metacritical at moments. Anyway, <laughs> um, that you need that kind of frustration um, or resistance to kind of then make your decision, crystallize your ideas, and so on. Also, boredom can often register as an emotional response to um, a problem, Hmm. especially, I would say, a social or cultural problem, Hmm. especially in the Victorian period. You see uh, a variety of different artists, and I'm looking at the Pre-Raphaelites in particular, who are a group of artists who wanted to return to the art movement's before Raphael, hence they're called pre-Raphaelites, they formed in 1848 and they were very frustrated by what they thought was kind of the overtired kind of, um, and again, I'm, I'm being a bit simplistic here, and they were also, you know, kind of uh, rash 20-year-olds, but <laughs> they were a bit tired of the way the Art Academy was um, recommending very specific ways of uh, depicting the human person mm-hmm. and was very much interested in the kind of renaissance um, scientific mm-hmm. attention to the human body which they found fascinating but they thought lacked a certain mystic sense were they a bit bored with it they were a bit bored with it yes <laughs> and so they were actually they you know they wrote all sorts of manifestos they drew up a list of the people who they thought were inspiring which mm-hmm. included christ and george washington and <laughs> all sorts of people in between um and they they created a kind of secular brotherhood or mm. monastic community yeah. they were not they did not behave like monks <laughs> um, um if anyone knows about their various exploits uh, um you know you would know that um but 
but they uh, they wanted to create a brotherhood where they and, and in many senses they also generated a kind of um, uh, sisterhood as well that that looked at trying to recover a sense of wonder and um, and mysticism mm-hmm. in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And they saw art as a resource for them. So I'd argue that their boredom, their frustration with the growing mechanizations of culture, mm-hmm. um, the ways in which culture itself seemed to be um, in a, is grow, increasingly self-defeating and that it was no longer linked to the cultic, mm-hmm. that is, to ritual, to a liturgical sense of time and so forth. They were trying to redress these issues. Mm-hmm. So their boredom became generative. Mm-hmm. Boredom can also become very destructive. You can kind yeah. of you know, bask in it, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's what the dandy in the the late Victorian, early 20th century does. You mm-hmm. know, kind of embraces boredom as, you know, this is my stance towards the world. Think of Algernon. Yes, yes. Algernon, yes. exactly. Yes. Points being earnest. Yes, as hilarious as he is, um, he's hard to handle in daily life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he definitely needs to grow in some virtue. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm currently reading uh, Evelyn Waugh's Vile Bodies right mm-hmm. now, which yes. is, yes, well, I highly recommend it. It's hilarious. And also, you know, um, very much just just traces the ways in which a variety of um, uh, young people called bright young things. Uh, mm. That was a phrase at the turn of well, especially in the early twentieth century. To I'd describe. like to bring that back. That's fun. Yes, yeah, yeah. Maybe we maybe we could uh, rebrand it. We we brand it a bit and make it a little bit and, and not signify um, you know uh, basically vacuous um, uh, uh, young people with no commitments in their lives. Um, and it's also really, side note, it's a fun uh, novel because it's one of the first to like record telephone conversations Ooh. as part of the, the dialogue. It's great. Um, and I think he's, he's, he's being a bit satirical and playing with the wasteland as well. Hmm. Um, so it's great on a variety of levels. But one of the, the, the point of it, and I'm looking at it in my current book project, is that he just shows the ways in which these different characters have so much time on their hands, very often come from very privileged positions, but... Um, just view everyday life as completely vacuous and the mm. best way to deal with it is to drink it away to forget mm. it to turn into you know to turn everyday experiences into a kind of oblivion mm. um, and there are competitions between some of these characters mm. to try to be the most outrageous at parties mm. and so forth right and then have this infer- you know their, their activity broadcasted all throughout the media which mm. I think has interesting parallels with the things we do with social media today mm. anyway so so to return to my main point um there are, there are different ways in which boredom registers. So it can be a valid symptom of, you know, this culture is not enough. I, I long for more, you know, because mm-hmm. we have a spiritual sense. Um, mm-hmm. We are made for more than just, um, you know, our, our immediate pleasures and so mm-hmm. on. Um, so there's that. But then there's also uh, uh, boredom can be a, a resistance to seeking out mm-hmm. the spiritual or mm-hmm. seeking out meaning in life. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's also, you know, psychologists talk a lot about how when you hit a certain level of cognitive uh, development, you just start to become a bit more bored, right? Mm. Um, there's uh, less for your brain to do. Yeah, or 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 there's um, or what's so funny is you almost have you almost have the time to start evaluating more than the present moment, right? Mm. I think actually G.K. Chesterton sums this up really well in his uh, chapter, The Ethics of Elfland, from mm-hmm. his book Orthodoxy: The Romance mm. of Faith. Um, which I think was published in 1908, but he has this really fun characterization of childhood development where he says, you know, um, a child of two 
uh, just needs to be told that, you know, this is a door and he finds it fascinating and yeah. he'll examine it and, you know, the doorknob yeah. and how it moves and so on. But a child of about six or seven needs to be told there's a dragon behind the door for him to <laughs> be interested, right? <laughs> and so what he argues is that using our imagination and our creative powers enables us to renew and cultivate a sense of wonder, which <laughs> otherwise will slowly diminish as, as we, uh, you know, uh, know things about the world. Yeah, know things about the world and, and ascribe a merely mechanistic or utilitarian um, significance to them, hmm. which again are two things that, again, increasingly became the descriptors or, or, or value, so use value um, hmm. or mechanistic or technological advancement hmm. really became the hallmarks of, you know, success and the measures of advancement in hmm. the Victorian period. Um and some of that's marvelous. Like a train is a fascinating concept, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But but also, um, but if you're only thinking that things are useful because of their use value, then mm-hmm. of course, you know, a variety of ethical and personal yeah. um, uh, issues emerge, obviously. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, this is so interesting. Now, I okay. want to bring this to a kind of... Um, personal question, which is we've kind of looked at the broad, the historical kind of movements of this. We've looked at what are some things um, particular to our times, especially from the Industrial Revolution on, that have kind of made, it seems like boredom is always going to be a human problem. I think so, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, to a certain extent, our question is always, what will we do with boredom? Right. Uh, Or how will we respond to or sit or rest into it or resist it? Um, But I do think that we live in a time that's particularly beset Mm -hmm. by boredom. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've thought about this a lot with, I mean, I think the most obvious application of this perhaps for me is the way that we turn to social media in quiet moments. Sure. Um, But I was curious for you, like when you think about this in your own life, uh, what role do you see boredom and either combating or resting into it? What do you see that playing in your life? That's a really great question. Um, Well, so I have to confess that there were some pretty profound, prolonged periods of boredom that I experienced, particularly mm. in high school, mm. um, that, that in later life, especially, you know, as I, as I finished up my university, um, studies, uh, studies that I found incredibly, um, wonderful, worthwhile and challenging. Mm. I studied at this wonderful, uh, liberal arts college in, uh, New Hampshire called the Thomas More College of Liberal Arts, where we studied everything from the pre-Socratics to the postmoderns, And, mm. you know, we looked at these fundamental questions of what it meant to be mm. human, um, as they've been wrestled with and worked through and, um, you know, played with over mm. time. Um, I, you know, as I was studying during that time in university, I was thinking a lot about my uh, experiences in high school. I was profoundly bored in high school. Mm. And um, why, why were you bored? Yeah, I yeah. I was too. Yeah. And I'll tell you about why I was. But I'm sure, curious why fair you were enough. Bored. I didn't find my classes at all stimulating. Mm. Um, you know, I just went to a, you know, typical government funded uh Provincial high school, um, provincial meaning like from the province of Ontario. Um, I'm not trying to be an aristocratic snob <laughs> this here. Provincial this high provincial school. high school. Yeah, no. There must be more than this provincial. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Yeah, I confess. Uh, maybe I was thinking that too. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I just was not uh, satisfied with my mm-hmm. curriculum. And uh, I wanted more and I wasn't quite sure how to get it. So like, I'm very grateful, you know, my family um, was a very kind of philosophic, engaged family. So I had lots of fantastic books at my fingertips. Like I also uh, lifeguarded a lot, like I worked quite a bit. Um, 
I sometimes, you know, in, in the last grade of high school, I, I skipped basically at least once a week to just stay at home and read um, and do Amazing. other projects, yeah. whatever. And, you know, my teachers, they couldn't do anything because my, you know, my grades were very good um, because it wasn't, anyway, that stimulating, but it wasn't, I didn't find it hard, which I'm grateful yeah. for, right? So I, in other words, I just think that particularly in high school, I wasn't receiving a lot of the, the, um, resources that that I think I would have really enjoyed to mm-hmm. figure out um more about like you know why there's meaning in life and mm-hmm. I remember there was a very important moment in grade 11 11th grade which uh, I, I was 16 when I had the opportunity to do a pilgrimage to Rome mm-hmm. and that profoundly like changed mm-hmm. my life so there was life before and after my experience mm-hmm. in Rome and this was my first time in Europe and just seeing the profound beauty that was integrated into everyday life and the mm-hmm. way you know even not just the architectural beauty the beauty of the of you know the church and the faith there um but just the way people even just I really found made an art out of their everyday, right? Mm. I think that's something that that Europe hasn't quite lost yet. Mm. And I'm not saying this in, you know, an excessively idealistic form, but, you know, this integration of beauty, of, you know, taking time for for food and, and mm. for socializing is just something that really, that really struck me. Um, and I, you know, when I returned back home, I just, that I really decided I want more of that. I want to mm. access more of that. And, you know, I, I think that's partly because I am very drawn to beauty. I've always loved poetry mm. and things like that. So that spoke to me. So anyway, I think that my boredom to a degree was healthy because it uh, it was a reaction to this intensive sense that I w- was not experiencing all that I could out of life. Mm. Right. Yeah. So now it's just a matter of like, how did I address this restlessness, this mm. problem of boredom. I could have done it a variety of ways, right? Not all of them being healthy ones. Mm-hmm. So I'm really grateful. My dissatisfaction with my high school made me profoundly appreciate my university experience. And mm. I threw myself into my university studies because I was so grateful for the, mm. how different they were from my <laughs> high school. I, I don't know if this no, is now totally just like rambling too long. There. But, and so actually something that I'm very interested in doing, and this is um, a project that I will be working on uh, more intensively um, in about a year from now when my other writing obligations end, um, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I would really like to work more on the interface between theology uh and the liberal arts and how we can especially um, think more carefully about what we teach young people, how uh, uh, curricula is develop- mm-hmm. are developed um, and so forth. And a figure who I, a thinker I'm really um, getting a lot from recently is Stratford Caldecott, um, mm-hmm. who uh, recently passed away and he's known by many as a very prominent Chesterton and Tolkien scholar. He was the GK Chesterton fellow at St. Bennett's Hall in mm-hmm. Oxford. Um, I'm collaborating with his wife and his daughter Tessa, who mm. run who run um, an organization that Stratford and his wife Leonie founded called Second Spring, the Center for Faith and Culture, and they provide a lot of cultural renewal op- um, uh, programs mm. and, and and projects. And one of them is a really neat uh, Oxford Studies summer program that I'll be mm. co-teaching. Um, uh, uh, in this this upcoming so summer, oh, very fun. Mm. But a lot of his writings, especially this one, I would really recommend it to people. And this relates to boredom, I promise. This is not just <laughs> a little side rant. Um, is called "Beauty in the Word: Rethinking the Foundations of Education." Mm. 
And this book talks a lot about how um, the the structure and philosophy and even the theological underpinnings of the uh, trivium and quadrivium, the uh, liberal arts education of the Middle Ages, provides us with a profound set of resources for opening up what we can hope, think, and say about the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you ever need a a striking defense of the, you know, the theological um, and and even emotional significance of what grammar has done for us in Mm -hmm. in culture and society, like go to Caldecott, it's it's really great um, because he says uh, grammar extends our our sense of ethics and aesthetics and he Mm -hmm. makes this claim in beautiful ways. Um, So I think... uh, right now in our culture where people are really struggling, I think in so many ways, especially young people Mm. to find meaning in their lives. One of the solutions or one of the opportunities I think is to really enrich and develop the kinds of um, curriculums that are developed, uh, the kinds of educational opportunities that are out there, summer programs, right? And things like that. To give give something for the Rebecca's of today to sink their teeth. Yeah. Well, exactly. I'm so grateful for some very dear, you know, teachers and mentors I had, and even just the encouragement, you know, my particularly my mom made for me to just explore the world and see it as my, you know, my oyster and, um, and, and hope for more essentially, because, um, yeah, it was uh, it was really boring, and I found it very hard. Yeah, yeah. it's funny because I'm, I'll just add my like personal experience sure. here too. Yeah. I and I wrote actually about this in a essay a while back on the Plow magazine. But I had hmm. a particularly very very boring summer when I was fifteen because okay. uh, my older siblings had all moved away. And um, in a very mm-hmm. typical high school way, I, I couldn't drive because, of course, yeah. you can't drive until you're 16. Right. And I had a falling out with my best friend at the time at oh. the one little two-week summer camp. This all sounds very dramatic. <laughs> and um, and my mom was on lots of speaking engagements that summer. And so it was just – I, like, had no one to drive me because my friend was the only one who could drive. <laughs> and I was, like, kind of on Tinder hooks with all the other, you know, various yes. people in my friend group. Yeah. And so I just had the whole summer stretched out ahead of me. And I couldn't drive right. and I couldn't go anywhere. And it was a profoundly boring summer. Like, I had kind of done my summer camp, and there I, like, you know, had two months until I had my little job. Right. I couldn't drive anywhere. <laughs> and I remember just, like, it, it really was, like, very, very boring and very, very hot also. And the, because oh, it was so hot. No, crushing combination. I know. I know. And it's, like, the perfect. It's a noonday devil. You oh, know? it's, uh, yeah. I was practically a, you know, uh, an early desert mother yeah. in, in the <laughs> desert, you know, at noon, just boiling hot. And my room was in the very top of our house. Oh. Right. And oh, that and always it, happens to the younger ones, it doesn't does. it? In we the big get, families, yeah. Now, to be fair, I will say, uh, to be fair, I got like a good, I, I picked my room in okay. this house because right. I, by the time we were there, I was like, I think they were like, oh, they'll all move out soon enough, you know. <laughs> but I, so that was nice in the winter, but Colorado, most of the houses don't have air conditioning. Okay. And right. so I remember I, like one day in this terribly hot summer, uh, Joel was, of course, away in Boston. And so I thought, I'm just going to go to the basement room because I'm going to like just melt into nothingness if I just stay in my room. <laughs> and so I remember going to Joel's room, and there were all these piles of like dusty books he'd left behind from college. And mm. I may have had a Facebook at that point. I don't think I would have maybe. I don't know. Um, and he had a kind of outer tune guitar, and there were some fairy lights. And and my boredom, I thought, well, I'm just going to start listening through all of his music albums. Oh, and I listen, started listening through all his music albums, and then I started reading all his books. And anyway, it became, I then started doing that every day. And it became this kind of little, like, I started to, like, really enjoy my little world. And I wrote lots of really bad poetry. And That's amazing. <laughs> I journaled a lot. And I realized that that boredom, um, because I didn't really have 
any unhealthy tools at my disposal. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have social media at that point that I could go and waste time on um, or use because I think social media can also be as we we met over social media there can be great uses for it yeah Um, and I I think and I think for some people who are really isolated it's a great tool for connection for sure but I didn't have that and so I I felt like that summer I kind of discovered my internal world Hmm. and in some ways I (laughs) it sounds almost silly to describe it this way but I remember listening to Sufjan Stevens' Casimir Poluski Day. Have you heard that song? No, I haven't. <laughs> I told someone about this the other day, and they were like, that sounds incredibly pretentious. And I was like, it is. I love it. <laughs> but I remember sitting there and listening to it, and there's this line that says, it's all the glory that the Lord has made and the complications we could do without. And I remember just sitting there, and mm. you know, as my little 15-year-old self, like, kind of stumbling on to these places in these moods and and praying really and I realized that I don't think I would have been able to do that right if I hadn't had that space of boredom Uh uh-huh yeah and so I think that it's a good example of when we talk about the problem of boredom the problem of boredom is really what will become of it yeah I think that is that is really well put and um it's so beautiful the way in which boredom can often create this radical clearing ground yeah. um, for you to really engage with some of the fundamental realities that structure our existence. Like yeah. space and time, for instance. Yeah. Like how do you move through those things? And yeah. quite a few uh, philosophers talk about um, uh, Martin Heidegger being one of them, but but there are others. Uh, um, Peter Tuhi being a more recent one or, or Elizabeth Goodstein. They talk about how boredom challenges our relationship to time and it also announces to us our temporal Mm -hmm. constitution right that we move through time and we have to find ways to parcel it out and time often announces to us or is a structure through which we articulate and manage desire Mm. um so i think that the the, the dynamics of desire of course really become uh, a big part of this question of boredom right because sometimes we just desire things that actually we should not receive that would not be Mm. good for us so there can be kind of a certain angsty boredom at you know a rejection of who we are made to be and how we're supposed to operate in the world but i think again uh um conversely there's also a healthy boredom that that announces like i want more for myself like even as you're describing what you uncovered right in Mm -hmm. your own home even Mm -hmm. um you know even these phrases from songs that all all of a sudden give you a vocabulary to perhaps Mm -hmm. articulate things that you felt but didn't know how to describe like when i started finally I encountered Plato for the first time in maybe grade 11. So again, when I was around 16 and I was also, um, uh, attending like a variety of different talks on Christian doctrine and virtues and, and, and so forth, um, with some other friends during high school. And those talks, because they were so well done, they really opened up for me a whole language or Mm. a way of articulating so many things that, you know, Mm -hmm. every, teenager feels I mean yeah I think that we really do such you know disservice to so many teenagers and you know like adolescents in general giving them giving them more like they're made for so much and they you know um one thing I really love about um uh, uh Pope John Paul II I've read a lot of his writings and um many of the addresses that he he especially geared towards young people mm-hmm. you know and of course we all know his famous you know do not be afraid yes. phrase that he said when he became Pope but but also just so many of his addresses to young people, especially around the nature of vocation or how to, you know, give of your time. You know, mm. He said those great longings and desires of mm. your heart, like don't be afraid of them. They're beautiful. Mm. And and um, look for things that will actually feed them. Yes. Um, yeah. I wonder if sometimes too that we, 
we won't become really aware of what those deep longings are mm-hmm. without some boredom, without some yes, space I think so, yeah. for those to rise. Um, there's a great line in a Malcolm Goat, not goat, <laughs> Malcolm Guide poem. Oh, he yes, says, yeah. Malcolm, <laughs> hope he never listens to this. Um, oh, he'll or, forgive you if yeah, he does. Yeah, I'm sure he will. He'll, he'll laugh. Write, he'll laugh. He'll laugh and write a poem about yeah, it. Yeah, he will. Um, where he says, <laughs> let richness rise out of emptiness. And there's this sense of, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the space that we need for boredom. Yeah. And I realize, a good point. even so now, when I, I said this the other day, I, I didn't actually think of this before I was interviewing you, but I realized that like most of the things I have done in my life have often come out of a space of boredom. Like mm-hmm. I even feel like to some extent I started the podcast because I was a bit okay. like bored, not bored, but you know, doing a PhD is this very relentlessly same it is. Um, thing. Yes. And, uh-huh. and so there's a goodness to that, but I've also felt that throughout my life, I consistently over and over again have felt the Lord teaching me to to not always move out of boredom, right. to sit with it yes. and to allow the discomfort to show me what I should do next. That's really beautifully put. And I think that uh, there are stages of growth and maturation that only occur when we allow ourselves sometimes to sit with that, which is uncomfortable or difficult yeah. about our existence. Um, to live the examined life is to go into all the nooks and crannies, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the dark places within us um, and, and to think about, you know, not only the you know, if we think about ourselves, like our interior as a landscape, right? Mm -hmm. We have, we have, um, you know, cliffs and valleys and, you know, um, I'm thinking of one of my favorite poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who says, you know, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathomed, right? Like Mm. there's a deep mystery within us, but I think certain kinds of difficult discontentments really open up to us, um, a greater understanding about who we are as humans, what Mm -hmm. can or can't satisfy us and and can actually even, you know, if if we want to go all C.S. Lewis or even Christina Mm -hmm. Rossetti, uh, Rossetti is someone I, I I work on in my in my book. You know, she basically sees uh, boredom and discontented feelings as uh, signs of you know our our, our desire for eschatology, like her desire mm-hmm. for the Lord to come and mm-hmm. for everything to be fulfilled. Um, when when he comes and only fulfilled when he comes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and this goes very much along much of what uh, C.S. Lewis says about our desires very often signal to us that we're made for something more than just this earth, right? Yeah. Um, you yeah. have to sit and listen to them. And, I think so, yeah. And I think that that's more of a battle than ever perhaps in our time just because we have so many tools right. at our disposal to ignore the yes. silence and to yeah. ignore the boredom. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, strangely, I mean, especially with social media platforms, I would argue that, you know, they all more or less follow a certain kind of Facebook paradigm, right? And yeah. and it's all very much based around like these very rather reductive emotive responses to things mm-hmm. like dislike, happy, tear. <laughs> you know, all of these are very rich. But I None say, of these match the richness of my emotional yes, response I, to I everything. I know, I know. I'm like, I need a emotogram where it's a smile and there's tears. Like, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Because anyway, um, welcome to my daily affective state. No, I'm kidding. Um, but not really. Um, but but it's it's structured around these very kind of basic paradigms. Um, and and so, of course, while there are uses to them, I, mm-hmm. I say that, that, that uh, you know, any technology is an extension of an aspect of the person. Yeah. Marshall McLuhan talks about this a lot. But um, we have to be careful what kinds of extensions of the self we're perhaps overemphasizing. Right? Yeah. Um, 
And so if we think about technology broadly conceived, what are the extensions of our, of our soul, let's say, mm. or our spiritual desires? Those are things like prayer mm. and poetry mm. and, and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the arts in general and contemplation, right? Mm. Um, if we want to think about those things. So the Greeks talked about poetry as a technology, as a techne, a form techne. of making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we need a proper... A proper uh, attention to the different forms of technology. And, yes. Yeah, and re- using those wisely. Yes. Not out of fear, but out of what spaces are we making? What are we doing with ourselves? Exactly. Our souls? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and to recuperate our notion of technology, we really think technology is just iPhones. Yeah. Really. I mean, yeah. if I just say yeah, yeah. generally. Um, I've made the claim before, poetry is technology. And I always mm-hmm. enjoyed that. It's fun saying that to my students and then seeing their it's responses. it's doing something for you. Yeah. And it's making something. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Doing and, and making. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Oh, Rebecca, we could talk all day, but it's been so fun. It's been so fun. So thank you so much for coming on. Mm-hmm. And I know that I asked you before, there's something you kind of want to close with reading to sure. us. Yeah. So I will let you do that now. Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to be reading a very short uh, quotation um, from Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and this was from his inaugural mass uh, when he became Pope in uh, 2005. But this quotation is used, uh, I want to talk about how it's being used in this instance. It's being used by um, by Benedictine uh, abbot uh, Jean-Charles Nolte, who recently wrote a book that came out with Ignatius Press called called The Noonday Devil, Acedia, the Unnamed Evil of Our Times. Mm. Anyway, it, <laughs> sounds, uh, it sounds kind of grim, but it's actually an incredibly rich, sometimes playful, um, uh, and wide-ranging examination of of Assyria from the from the early church and the desert fathers in particular um, up to the present day, and he looks at it just not from a you know kind of a genealogy of of this of this uh, sin, this discontent, um, and this state, but he also looks at its various applications in different states of life mm-hmm. from like you know motherhood to uh, mm. professional life to singlehood mm. to uh uh you know um the clerical life and so on huh. useful yeah very useful highly recommend it that's why i'm talking about it but he argues that um one of the main things and he's pulling from aquinas here um that acedia does to us is it robs us of our joy and particularly also it's a fear of joy it's a fear mm. of the of what kinds of risks we have to take especially in the name of charity to go outside of ourselves and to think about others um it's a fr- it's a certain fear or a hesitancy mm-hmm. or a lack of generosity on our part to mm-hmm. really come outside of ourselves mm-hmm. um so i wanted to just end with this quote from pope benedict who's very much drawing from the benedictine and the contemplative monastic mm-hmm. way of being which really i think is something that uh we could really uh benefit from having in our lives more right now as a redress to the negative kinds of boredom. So this is what Benedict says, Benedict XVI. Are we not perhaps all afraid in some way? If we let Christ enter fully into our lives, if we open ourselves totally to him, are we not afraid that he might take something away from us? Are we not perhaps afraid to give up something significant, something unique, something that makes, that makes life so beautiful? Do we not then risk ending up diminished and deprived of our freedom? No. If we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing of what makes life free, beautiful, and great.
No, only in this friendship are the doors of life open wide. Only in this friendship is the great potential of human existence truly revealed. Only in this friendship do we experience beauty and liberation. And why I think this is so significant when we think about, you know, the problems and questions of boredom is that very often from psychological, but even spiritual vantage points, uh, the kind of, um, negative ways people sometimes try to resolve boredom is to stay inward, to stay insular, or to find kinds of uh, distractions or consolations that actually just help to further reinforce Mm. the discontentment and the fear that very often Mm. shapes that. So, um, you know, in in this address, Benedict talks a lot about, um, you know, opening up your horizons, being open to that, which is outside of you, the invitation of Christ and of the religious sense that really um, will expand what you can hope from in this Mm. world and and, and hope for yourself and others too. I love that. I think there's a sense in which um, he does echo that that phrase you said from Pope John Paul earlier, the second, yes. that we do not have to be afraid as mm-hmm. we enter into boredom and silence. There is there is presence there. Right. That presence will bring joy. Yes. And so we can enter into it without fear and without kind of a panic to, to seize other tools that will take us out of it. Right. And very often it's in silence that God announces himself, right? Yes. We know this from, um, from scripture. And uh, another book I would highly recommend is The Power of Silence by Cardinal mm. Seurat, who... Um, makes the case that, you know, silence itself is a kind of language, a communication to us about what it means to be human. And Mm. we can only see certain things and hear certain things in silence, which I think goes back to what you and Joel were were, um, talking about on the coastal path hike you had. The coastal path, as we were quiet and all of a sudden heard buzzings and rustlings and and, and waves. So that is what I would leave all of you with today. Lean into the silence. Embrace a blessed kind of boredom, Mm -hmm. um, for we think that you surely will find fullness there. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rebecca. Oh, it was such fun. Thank you. Till next time. (laughs) 